Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Deeply Technical series. Welcome to Codish. This is Greg Noakes, Master Technical Architect with Heroku. I've got J.T. Woolahan uh, on with me, who is the uh, author of Mastering Large Datasets with Python. Hi, J.T. Hey, Greg. We're going to talk about large datasets with Python. Now, I'm a Rubyist at heart, and I have been for 10, 15 years now. I know Python's a language. Um, about the only thing I really know about it is it was named after Monty Python, but... Um, I understand that it's somewhat like Ruby, um, but other than that, I don't know much about it. So can you tell me a little bit about Python and, and why people choose it? Sure, yeah. So so Python has a lot of the same benefits as Ruby being a, a high-level scripting language. They both allow you to do a lot of powerful things relatively concisely with code. The, the main benefits of, of Python are... The, the data processing ecosystem that's, that's risen up around the language and within the language. It's, it's really been a place that the scientific and data science machine learning communities have, have gathered. And when you combine that with the lightweight web frameworks, you know, pretty similar to what you find in, in Ruby, um, and even some of the more fully featured web frameworks, you get a really powerful combination, right? So you can do uh, d- data processing, you can do data analytics, and you can use it for for your web applications and, and databases and all that stuff as well. Super, super versatile in that sense. That's nice. Yeah, I'm familiar with the Django web framework. That's probably one of the, the, the 800 pound gorilla in the Python ecosystem. Yeah, that's the big one. It's a popular one. It's been around for a while. It's, it's very robust. Most of the other Python web frameworks are less opinionated than Django, or at least lighter than Django, or they don't come with batteries included. Popular ones include Flask um, and Pyramid. Um, And then more recently, folks are starting to release asynchronous web frameworks that can make asynchronous uh, calls like uh, Quart. Quart is a Flask port that makes asynchronous calls, and, and Starlet is a Flask-like app web framework that is is asynchronous first. That's pretty cool. That's um, a good intro into the Python ecosystem. Thank you. Um, I, I I've looked at Django in the past, and I've already I already know Rails pretty well, and I didn't really want to learn a another large opinionated framework like that. So maybe I'll take a look at one of those lightweight ones like Starlet. That sounds interesting to me. Yeah, if you think about Python as a as a data processing language or a data analytics language, the lightweight frameworks make a lot more sense because all they're really intended to do is serve data up through an API. So if you're if you're deploying a machine learning algorithm and you just need to layer an API on top, something like Starlet is great because it can make calls to your machine learning routines, which are also written in Python, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, it doesn't have any sense of, you know, admin rights or privileges in it, right? And you can't like build a blog out of the box with it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because, you know, half of the battle of, of you know, machine learning is great, but 
if you can't display that data in a to systems that are going to consume it or, or websites that are going to consume it or whatever, then it's pretty useless to, to do all that work on it. Right. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. There is certainly a place for data science as, as research and machine learning as research. And, and you can learn things by doing machine learning. It's got strong roots in the academic community. But in industry, what we really want to do is we want to embed machine learning in our systems. Typically, those are web applications of various stripes. And Python is a really convenient way of doing that because you can write your web applications or the web application integration in the same language as you write your machine learning software. I often um, work with companies that are designing streaming services, uh, streaming-based architectures. So with Kafka as a backbone, um, do you see folks using that sort of an architecture much uh, with machine learning or, or are you more in the, the exposing it to web applications via APIs? So most of what I see is folks exposing it to web applications via, via APIs. Machine learning algorithms are, you can use them on streaming data, right? Kind of like piece by piece as, as things come in, mm-hmm. but it's, you can't as easily train most of the algorithms on on streaming data. They usually have some batch component. So if you look at if you look at what what folks do for you know they're updating their recommender systems or something like that, right? They'll they'll update them every few hours and then update them all all at a time. They won't update them action by action by action. Some people do do that, but most of them will update the systems as a whole. That doesn't mean the systems can't take advantage of new information that they have about you. It's just that the underlying model that's being used to assess the information that's available available hasn't changed. So you you wrote uh, Mastering Large Datasets with Python. I assume the book is, is about machine learning and, and using Python to accomplish that? Sort of, yeah. The book is about how individuals can adopt a scalable programming style that allows them to prototype on small data sets and move to increasingly large data sets up to the type of environment that you would see if you're working on a a web scale, industry scale, enterprise scale problem. That's interesting way because in my world, often we talk about, you know, three different levels of, a, of an application. The first is development where you've got mock data, very small sets, very you know light resources. The next is staging where you're running smoke tests and, and uh, maybe some load tests against it. Then of course the third is production where you're going, you know, turning everything up to 11 and going as fast as you can. So it sounds like uh, using a similar thought process for building machine learning. That's exactly right. And, and I actually think about it in three stages as well, based on the types of parallelism you need to solve the problems in a satisfiable way. So I, I imagine a first phase in which you can solve the problem on your individual laptop or your individual PC. And so this is a problem in which the data set and the compute hardware are contained to your machine. So this is, you know, any prototype scale problem, right, will will fit on a laptop um, and you'll be able to solve it with the compute resources that you have. 
The second phase is one in which you have enough compute resources to process it on your laptop in a satisfiable time frame, but the data itself doesn't fit on your laptop. So this is a problem where you might want to process, I don't know, five terabytes of data, right? You, you can't store that on a, on a standard issue laptop, but you could certainly process it on a laptop in, in a reasonable amount of time, um, certainly less than 24 hours. And then the third problem I have, or I propose, is that you've got a problem where both the compute resources and the data needs have to be external um, to whatever machine it is that you're working on, right? So you, you basically need cluster computing um, and, and some type of distributed data system. Um, and this is where you, where you have maybe hundreds of terabytes of data that you need to process. Um, and this is where you, you really start thinking about uh, big data problems. And how do you approach those big data problems? Um, for two parts of that question. First is, how do you accomplish the cl clustering? Are you doing uh, parallelism uh, across different instances? Um, or are you, you know, packing a whole bunch of resources into one huge instance? And then how do you approach the, uh, the data problem? How do you store that much data? What sort of tools do you see people use? Yeah, so, so storage becomes less of a problem in the in the modern age, right, with the cloud. Um, in the book, I talk about S3 and EMR as, mm -hmm. as examples of how you might solve this problem. We actually released a, a free companion and book uh, all about object storage. Um, but for those who aren't familiar with object storage, it allows you to store data in, in pretty much whatever format you want. And then you can ingest those data files with either individual scripts or um, scripts being run by a, a Hadoop cluster or something like that, right? And we, we talk about how you can use EMR, which is Amazon's uh, Elastic MapReduce service. It's a virtualized Hadoop cluster that you can rent uh, you know, by the second, and it'll run scripts of your choosing against data that's stored in S3. Um, the nice things that about this is that you can store as much data as you want in S3 and allocate as many resources as you need for EMR. And so, you know, you the sky is the limit, or I guess the budget is the limit on, <laughs> on what you, you can do with the system. And of course, I always feel the need to add that Microsoft and Google both have synonymous or analogous systems. So you're not locked into to AWS or or any of the cloud vendors, um, if you choose to, to go with them. Um, but that's will typically be how you deal with kind of these, these big distributed processes. So I've heard the, the term MapReduce a lot over the years, and I've done a little bit of research into it, but I've never actually had to use it in, in a production system or a system at all. Most of the data sets I work with fit well within a terabyte, so I just use Postgres. Um, can you explain a little bit about what MapReduce is, maybe like a 60-second version? Sure, yeah. So MapReduce is a programming pattern where you take one function and you apply it over a large amount of data to transform that, that data. And then you take another function and you apply it over the transformed data to collect all the data into some new format. So you can imagine the classic example is, is counting words in documents. So the first function translates each 
document into a list of words and counts. And then the reduce function basically accumulates all of those counts. So at the end, you have a list of, of words and the accumulated counts from all the documents. Okay, that's cool. Thank you. That, that helps a lot. Uh, so you could do the same sort of stuff in traditional 30-year-old SQL. It would just take uh, a lot more work in the programming language in between somewhere. Yeah, and the big benefit of map and reduce is that it constrains the work that you want to do in such a way that it makes it inherently parallelizable. So you can trivially parallelize your map reduce code. So you can you can use it on problems that don't require parallelism, but then when you do need parallelism, you can invoke them using the same pattern. So there becomes no transition between I'm working on a prototype to now I'm working on a problem that's kind of in this in-between space to now I'm working on a on a large data problem where I need cloud computing resources. That's really useful. I always say that development staging and production should look exactly the same from an infrastructure perspective, since I'm an infrastructure person. And it sounds like MapReduce gives you the ability to make that code work almost exactly the same, no matter what size you're working on all the way up to, you know, perhaps even petabytes of data. Right. That's exactly right. It's almost the de facto standard for your massive scale computing tasks. Um, the Hadoop ecosystem and, and Spark ecosystem are the default standards for the petabyte scale data tasks. And so, you know, their, their explicit support for the MapReduce style um, makes it an obvious choice for anybody who thinks that they're going to need to scale to that size. So fundamental question here, is, is Python a functional language or is it a um, object-oriented language? So Python is object-oriented, and I talk about some of the functional principles or opportunities to use Python in a functional way in the, in the book. The Python community is a little split about what the language wants to be. Um, in a lot of ways, they're trying to be everything for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's strong functional support in Python, um, but it's it's not optimized for functional programming in any way. So, you know, sometimes you are kind of you're you're doing things out of out of step with how the language was designed. That said, you can write clean functional code in in Python. Um, you can write functional looking code in Python, and there are there are libraries in the Python ecosystem for all of the the functional built-ins that you would find in a standard functional language. So Python's not a functional language, no, but it's got functional language support. It's clearly not, it's a little bit intentional, um, but it's it's certainly not the preferred way to write Python. But there are communities and pockets of the Python community that support the functional style. That, that's interesting that uh, Python is so uh, mutable that you can... You can approach both, or you can support both approaches to to programming. Yeah, and that's a that, that's a strength of Python, but it's also a, a weakness. I think one of the reasons that I I wanted to write the book was because I saw that people who were being trained in data science programs weren't getting any opinionated way of writing program writing code or programming. 
because they're they're coming up through these these data science programs, maybe having taken some computer science classes, maybe having a computer science degree, but usually not having been full-time developers. And so they didn't have a, a traditional object-oriented style. Um, they didn't have a traditional functional style. And so what they what they got using Python was just a mishmash of, of you know, I know how to use this library. I know how to use this library. I know how to use this library. Um, but I don't have a, of an overarching philosophy about how to write code and what good code should look like. So part mm-hmm. of what I'm trying to do here is, is propose a, a semi-functional approach to writing code for data science and analytics and data processing. That's really cool because, you know, coming out of the Ruby community, style and, and, and code style can be the, the genesis of many interesting conversations if you want. So it's, it's, it's interesting that I, I am a very opinionated person, you know, tabs, not space or spaces, not tabs. I don't want to start that conversation, but um, <laughs> so I, I get the opinionation. Absolutely. And I get that communities need to have kind of an agreement on what code is going to look like and how it's going to be written both from a readability perspective, but also from a, perspective of if I'm going to write a, a add-on for a language, a gem or, or a um, Python extension, um, yeah. it should be written in a way that anybody else can look at it, understand it, and it will work correctly with the rest of the ecosystem. So yeah, I absolutely get that. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and the Python ecosystem is so diverse that you get quite a hodgepodge of, of different styles even in areas where the the community has tried to define define standards, there will be, you know, rogue developers who who build their own, you know, go by their own standards, and then just because their library or package is is quite useful, it'll get adopted, and nobody will take the time to to go back and redo the code to fit the you know, the conventions. So you can get you can get things that are quite out of convention which is one of the more frustrating pieces about Python. Yeah. I, the first time I actually heard of Python was, I don't want to say how long ago, but it was being used mainly as a scripting language for sysadmins. Yeah. Um, because that's, that's my, my background. Um, and so that's kind of when I first bumped up against it. I had just learned Ruby though. So I was like, well, you guys do your stuff in Python. I'll do my stuff in Ruby and we'll all be happy. Um, and I had the uh, ability of where I worked at the time to do that. So they kind of left me alone. And um, so I can see where it's, it's, it's been around for a while. So I can see it has a very diverse community uh, behind it. You know, both sysadmins, uh, web front end developers, uh, big data people. And, and the Ruby community definitely doesn't have that. We're primarily, I think, web folks. So. I, I think that's actually a pretty uh, good strength of the Python communities. You do have that diverse ecosystem behind it. Yeah, it's definitely a strength. And I think it gives it gives people the sense that in Python that they can solve any problem that they need, you know, which is doable in any of the modern languages, right? Um, but in, in Python, there tend to be tools out there to support you on that journey. And examples of people trying to solve the same problem that you are with Python. So I just realized that you know some folks listening might be 
more object oriented and not really understand functional or might not even be coders at all. So could you give a quick outline of the difference between an object oriented and a um, functional style? Yeah, I think the the names draw the distinction. So in an, in an object oriented style, you spend a lot of time defining your data structures and types and what they do. And everything is about these things doing doing other things. Um, so it's about your objects more than your verbs. Functional programming kind of flips that around, and it's really about your verbs. You define the verbs, and then the nouns are kind of just there. Um, so you pay, you pay less attention to the types of data and the different structures. So you'll tend to have less. You won't spend time defining lots and lots of classes, typically, although you might define types you'll define fun- lots of functions that operate on data and do things with that data. Typically, functional languages won't operate on things in place. That's, that's highly frowned upon. What functional languages prefer to do is, is return new and updated objects. Languages that really support the functional style have lots of compiler niceties that make that lower overhead. One of the reasons why the functional style is picking up in popularity is because the increasing RAM that we have with modern machines supports the higher overhead that comes with returning new data types and new data structures all the time. Whereas, you know, with object-oriented programming, you can operate on everything in place and everything is, is really, it can be really efficient. If you're constantly returning new objects and creating new data structures in a language like Python that isn't compiled, you're going to have a lot more overhead. So even if you, even if you get some benefits out of it, it, it might not have been possible to use a functional style to solve certain problems 15 years ago because you might just not have enough RAM. Yeah, one of the things that I learned object orientation, again, far too long ago than I'd like to admit, uh, when I first picked up C++. Mm-hmm. And the instructor I had at the time told me that you model the world with objects. So you have a person object, and that person object contains all the data about a person in records. And then you can have like, I want to change my mailing address as a as a um, function inside of that um person object. So that's, and it's, it's hard to break out of that thinking because I, I tried to pick up a language called Elixir a few years ago. And I first, my first project in a new language is of course, I'm going to write a blog. Um, and I sat down and I started trying to figure out how to write a blog without objects. And I, I honestly, I couldn't, I'm so entrenched in object orientation that I really couldn't, um, come up with how to do that. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, that sort of paradigm really can define how you look at coding and how you look at the world. And it can be, I think for some people, it can be difficult to break out. I think that the different paradigms have different tendencies and and are better suited for different areas of, of programming or challenges of programming, right? Like, I think it and there are probably functional purists who would disagree with this, but I think object-oriented programming is, is tends to be better for web programming, for building for tasks like building a blog. But if you are processing large amounts of data, 
um, or you are, you know, defining mathematical operations that you want to apply to data, then functional programming is a more suitable language style paradigm because the logic gets to be separate from whatever whatever task uh, you're trying to solve. Sort of like Unix tooling, which is near and dear to my heart. Uh, That's you know, exactly you right. Got into a Unix tool, it shouldn't know where it is or what it's doing. And th- that almost brings me to thinking maybe functional programming is what you should be using for things like uh, event streaming architectures, because you just have these events being fired at you and you might not they might change a little bit, you know, maybe you don't have an object to find about what this event looks like. You're definitely not storing it. You're just processing and putting a, a result back into the stream. So maybe I should start looking at that for those sorts of architectures. I think that's right. I think Scala is a, is a really popular language for, for problems like that. And it's it's got great streaming support. And I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's a it's a functional derivative of Java Mm-hmm. Um, compiles to the JVM, so you can work with the Java ecosystem and all the, the benefits there. And a lot of streaming-oriented, big, free and open-source software projects are being written in Scala for exactly that reason. And it, it brings all the benefits of of parallelism that you would that you would get from a functional language. So trivial parallelism with with map and reduce. You also get you know, pretty fast code because it compiles really, really nicely down to to Java bytecode, um, and the the functional methods that you come up with will be compiled really nicely into into Java bytecode and Java classes. Mm-hmm. One thing that I'm kind of reflecting on right now, though, is uh, with Python, sort of two headedness, where it has some functional support and it is object oriented as well. I think that gives you a, or it might give you, and your opinion on this, but it might give you an interesting tool set to approach, especially machine learning problems, because you can lean on the object orientation when you need to deal with data structures, but then you can use the functional side of it when you do need to do that sort of uh, functional processing. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, so the machine learning process is interesting. Machine learning kind of flips the script on the map and reduce paradigm it's more of a reduce and then map process where you need to create something from lots and lots of data and then you need to apply that thing to lots and lots more data typically people have used classes for machine learning primarily because a lot of the early early machine learning software comes out of the the java community um and a lot of the the software developers were familiar with the object oriented style. I think there's a real opportunity to distill it into a functional style, and I think increasingly you're seeing functional programming communities start to build machine learning ecosystems. Um, and I think you know when when one of them gets it right, if they could ever mount the momentum to chip away at, at Python's you know, pretty big head start on becoming the language of the machine learning community. Um, I think there's a real opportunity, opportunity there. The one tricky area is that functional languages tend to be descriptive 
languages. So you, you tend to describe what you want to do. And then a lot of the actual work is defined by the compiler. That works well when you need to do general data transformations. It works less well when you are doing huge matrix algebra and you need to you know, optimize the moving around of bits or you're working with a GPU and you're, you're optimizing the moving around of bits again, right? Um, which is a lot of what deep learning is. So you know, how applicable the functional languages are to deep learning is, is a question. There have been some, some strides in, um, there are some functional GPU support libraries that are, can, are competitive with the, with the most highly optimized kind of procedural libraries, but I, I still wouldn't say that they're the default or even, I, I can't recommend them in, in good faith for somebody who has a production use case in mind. So if you were a, a new programmer or new to the machine learning environment, Besides reading your book, of course, what steps would you advise someone to take to, to learn more about this topic? So I think one of the best things that anybody who's new to machine learning or programming can do is to learn several different languages, because this will give you a broader perspective on whatever language you do end up choosing to work in, and you'll learn more ways of solving the problems. You also learn the patterns. When you only work in one language, I don't think you get the opportunity to see how the things you are doing in that language are part of more general patterns that programmers use to solve problems. But if you work in Python and then you learn some Java and then you learn, say you learn a functional language like Scala or Clojure, you'll learn different ways of solving problems and you'll see the different patterns of solving problems and that'll help you when you you need to go off and solve challenging problems that you haven't faced before which is tends to be what trips us off as programmers yeah absolutely i did not follow that advice as a young programmer and that's why i got into sysadmin work um i learned c plus plus and then um basically stopped so i'm still suffering from that because like i like i said earlier when I look at a problem, I see objects. I, I, I have a really hard time kind of understanding the functionality of it. And I think that the streaming architectures that we're seeing, I'm seeing people start to build now is sort of opening my eyes to that other side of it. And it's making me want to maybe pick up some skills in that side of the world and looking forward to doing that. It's definitely a challenge. When, when I started learning Haskell, learning how to solve problems without using for loops broke my brain a couple of times. Mm -hmm. But, um, but once you, you know, once you kind of break it down and understand recursion and, and how to work without, without side effects, you start to see your other problems in a different light. Um, so even when you're working in Python and, and you can really do whatever you'd like, you understand the problem that you're dealing with in a different way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's the important part is I've given folks that advice of, you know, hey, learn learn a couple languages. Don't just learn Ruby or, or whatever it is you're learning. Try to try to spread your your wings a little bit. Um, I think that's the important part of that is 
you can learn different ways of solving the same problem. And then when you come back to a, the language that you, you want to use, whichever one that is, you can bring that skill set, that, that other way of, of looking at it. And then not everything's the for loop that you're going to, or you're not going to hammer every problem with the for loop. You might say, Hey, it's actually more important or more efficient to use recursion here. So um, I can do that in Ruby. So I will. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you don't want to get in the position where you're a developer and you know you only know one tool, and so every problem has to be solved with that tool, right? Yep. Um, my teams all run kind of polyglot shops where you know we'll use you know JavaScript for the JavaScript problems, we'll use Python for the Python problems, we'll use Scala for the Scala problems, R for the R problems, and you know mix in shell scripting where where we can't use anything else. So if you're interested in your book, where can you get it? So Manning Manning is the publisher, um, and they're, they're at manning.com. You could also search for it on, on Amazon by just searching the title, Mastering Large Data Sets with Python. Um, or you could pick a copy up at my website, which is jtwallahan.com. Cool. And isn't there a uh, discount code uh, for it? Yes, there there is. I think it's Podish nineteen. That's what it, it is. is. Yeah, it's Podish yes. nineteen is the discount code for forty percent off the book and and all other Manning products, I believe, as well. So that includes you know other books. They've got a great great lineup of of books on um, different data science topics, Python programming topics, as well as some functional languages too. If you're interested in that, they've got uh, books on Clojure and and even functional JavaScript, I believe. Uh, if you wanted to to do something really strange, <laughs> that's 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 something I, I, I try to stay away from JavaScript. So um, yeah, I don't I don't blame you there. <laughs> After or when this podcast actually comes out, um, uh, you and I will probably be tweeting out a few opportunities to get some codes to get the book for free. So if you're listening, go ahead and uh, like, follow, and subscribe, and you can maybe get a code for the book for free and jt thank you so much it was fantastic talking to you i really appreciate the time and hopefully we can chat again thanks so much greg thanks for joining us for this episode of the codish podcast codish is produced by heroku the easiest way to deploy manage and scale your applications in the cloud if you'd like to learn more about codish or any of heroku's podcasts please visit heroku.com slash podcasts